Welcome to the Value Investor TV podcast. This is the podcast that helps you grow your wealth and become financially independent. My name is Beko and my partner, Hari. Hello. <laughs> um, if you guys are listening to us uh, on YouTube, you will notice that um, we are, our, our background scenery has changed. Um, that is because we will be recording this kind of remotely. Uh, and whenever opportunity presents itself, we will be together. But uh, the default is uh, it will be this. Um, just so you guys know, just the housekeeping detail there. Uh, today, we'll be, we will be talking about some questions that were sent over to us. Um, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been really great to, to have our listeners send over some questions. Um, any, any questions regarding you know, value investing, personal finance, stuff like that, send, us, so send it over. We'll queue them up, and once we have enough of it, we'll do one of these Q&A sessions uh, where, we'll, where we will go through uh, your questions one by one and answer uh, to the best we can. So um, before we do that, should we do a quick disclaimer, Hari? Yeah. Uh, so this uh, podcast is there to help you um, uh, understand how uh, value investing works and how to educate yourself on investing. Um, <clears throat> we are not your financial advisor. We don't know your specific financial situation. So uh, if necessary, please con- you know, consult with a financial advisor before making any uh, investment decisions. Excellent. All right, let's uh, dive right into it. So we have three questions today. Um, let's start right away with the first one. When calculating compounded annual growth rate, um, you also shorten it. A lot of times people shorten it with CAGR, or sometimes people call it CAGR. Um, so compounded annual growth rate for sales, EPS, or whatever. When calculating the compound annual growth rate, do you use the last physical end number or trailing 12 months for the ending value? This question was submitted by Andy. Uh, thank you for submitting that question, Andy. Um, Hari, what's your uh, what's your thought on this? Yeah, so thanks for the question. Um, the The best way that I, I do it is I always prefer to have a full fiscal year uh, uh, for comparison purposes. So... Uh, the the important thing about calculating a compounded annual growth rate is that you want to modify those outputs. So the the number that you necessarily see on the earnings per share or or revenue, well not revenue but earnings per share, um, needs to be uh, you know taken take into account the uh, if there are present one time expenses, you know things that are of a non recurring nature or if they're discontinuing operations. So. You know, if you use one of these database websites um, to do that, you may actually get um, a company that may have exited a business line or some other thing, um, or it may have had one-time expenses um, that was actually very common in 2018 um, because of the tax law changes that you saw one-time expenses that uh, you know they had to reduce their tax liability. They took a uh, or tax offset, which was an asset that took a hit to their earnings. So uh, if you if you have to, uh, you, you know, so you may look at these numbers and then actually see them that are, you know, that are incorrect or what it looks like to be incorrect. Uh, uh, you know, when you modify it, you'll actually see that, you know, companies have slightly different things. And that, that applies to both ends of the spectrum. You know, if they sell an asset um, like Macy's did in uh, 2017, they sold off... Uh, one of their San Francisco, you know, um, one of the big uh, malls that they owned, uh, 
that <clears throat> created a tax uh, or it created a one-time earnings that they they took, but it really didn't. They're not going to be selling the San Francisco uh, retail store every year, so you can't use that and uh, take that into consideration. Um, so, uh, for that, you know, in that same case, trailing twelve months is a uh, maybe a little bit misleading, depending on how you uh, you interpret uh, the number. So, I always prefer to just take fiscal years. Uh, every year that we get, uh, you know, you have that, and wait till um, that. Uh, the other reason is that um, the fiscal year. Uh, annualized uh, earnings will be audited so then there are you know there's no modifications that need to be made because the quarterly reports are unaudited which is which is normal but you just don't want to you want to wait till everything has been kind of verified by the cfo and the accountants and all that yeah those are really good points um i think one of the also one of the reasons why i like to use kind of the fiscal year is for just the ease of calculations um just yeah i'd like to just wait until every number is out and then have that fiscal year right there to compare to the previous fiscal years um so to me that again all those points uh what hari echoed plus for me it's just the ease of calculations yeah the other thing to do that um this is something that benjamin graham uh mentioned in uh i think it was in the intelligent investor may have been in securities analysis it may have been in both actually but (laughs) he will take the average earnings um for from 10 years ago for three a three-year period and the average earnings for the current three-year period you know trailing three-year period and average them um just to take into account any you know minor fluctuations that there could be uh, and when compound, com- calculating a compounded uh, growth rate. And so the idea there being, I want to have, you know, they maybe have pluses or minuses, at, you know, every year. Uh, and I, I don't want to use a, you know, one-time spike or a one-time drop as the thing. So I average them out. Um, yeah. and, and you can also do that for uh, capital expenditures when you're calculating free cash flow. So, um, you know, you may not, you know, one year may have more cap expenses than another. So you kind of average them out. So it's not a bad idea to do that uh, using, you know, averages or uh, maybe weighted average, something that'll help uh, kind of do it. But remember, with everything that you're doing on in terms of math, you can get into a false precision mode. And so, you know, you try and be as conservative with any of these estimates as you can. So if you're not sure if that number should be taken out or left in, uh, you know, do do so in a conservative manner. Um, you know, to help your help your uh, investment uh, uh, estimates work. Yeah, I think the, I think that's a really good um, suggestion right there, Hari. Because when you start digging into like Excel spreadsheets and trying to apply these formulas, you have this false notion of okay, if I do all these math, I'm going to be correct. But in reality, all these all these math lie on the assumptions, and those assumptions could could easily be broken. Right. Uh, it could easily be false. So, all right. That was the, anything else you want to add, Hari, there? Uh, so, no, I, I think, um, you know, that it, it's obvious. It's a great question because, you know, it's something that may not be obvious to everyone why you would want to do one or another. So, you know, uh, but I, I don't have anything really necessarily to add other than just, you know, be conservative with your estimates, whatever you do, um, just to protect yourself. Yeah. That is a really good suggestion advice right there, um, Hari. Uh, so let's move on to the next question. Um, this question comes from John Ridley. And thank you again, John, for submitting your question. Uh, so let's go to the first one. Um, 
when do you decide to sell a stock? Uh, there seems to be very little out there on exit strategy, which surprises me. Uh, I think that's a really interesting and very poignant, you know, pointed question because that is something that I've encountered. You know, trying to learn as a trying to learn investing as a value investor, there's not a lot of material out there educating you on when to sell. Um, perhaps there's a lot on when to buy because kind of the fundamental of investing, fundamental value investing is trying to find cheap stocks. There's a lot of materials out there, but um, in that context, uh, I'll leave it over to you, Hari. What do you think? Yeah, uh, so thanks again, uh, John, for the question. I, what I would say is the reason that you're probably not seeing a whole lot out there on that is it's a tougher question than the question about what to buy. Um, and a lot of people don't have good answers for it. Um, and you know, and that may be why you're you struggle with it is that it's it's not as simple necessarily as oh this stock is undervalued should I buy it? Um, and you know the 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 question that you're asking here is is essentially um, it, it, it's a multi step step thing, right? So first of all, let's say that you bought this stock and now um, you know the stock is was very well undervalued. You're you know, your calculations are, are coming down and you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, um, it was 50%, you know, greater than 50% undervalued and now it's dropped even more. What's the, the question, right? So what should I do here? Well, a lot of money is lost when you um, when you sell too quickly, right? In, in this case, you've bought a stock. Now some bad news on the macro environment has changed, you know, has caused some things. We've seen that recently with you know, China's uh, and the U.S.'s trade war, the stock price drops. So that's a good time first to reassess your investment thesis. So that first step is, why did I buy this in the first place? Well, I bought it because it was cheap um, and it was a good company, right? That's kind of what we've, the mantra we've been trying to uh, tell everyone since the beginning is stock price dropped. I want to buy, um, but now what do I do? Well, Hopefully you've had, you know, you have extra dry powder to go back in because if your investment thesis is still correct, the answer is not to sell in that case, it's to actually buy more, right? And and that often takes a lot more courage than you would, uh, you know, you would think because you'd say, well, if the stock is going down, well, the bottom is, you know, zero. Well, your analysis should be really helping you identify, is this a good company, first of all? Um, and when I bought it, you know, I bought it for a specific reason. That was my investment thesis, that it was undervalued by some amount. I expect these things to occur, right? I can tell you for now, about half of the time I buy something, it, it drops even further. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that, that doesn't necessarily mean that I made a mistake, right? I'm going to hold it for a long time and I'm, I will wait for the cash flows of the business to, you know, make my investment thesis pan out, right? So, uh, so that that's kind of the first phase of this is, you know, when am I selling? Well, I'm selling when I don't want to sell it when it's, you know, grossly undervalued, right? If it's grossly undervalued, I really actually want to buy more. Now, I know that wasn't the answer necessarily to the question you were asking, right? Um, but I do want to make that a, a an important part of this uh, decision, right? Is that if I if the price goes down, what what are my options there, right? It's buy more or do nothing, you can you can sell, but um, but you know that that seemingly is the the best way to lose all of your money over time is essentially taking a, a further hit when it goes down. 
Yeah. Um, and just you- summarize right there. I think you brought up really a lot of good, really points, really good points. I just want to summarize right there yep. uh, for our listeners. So a couple of things that, uh, that really stuck to me is first, when the price does go down, you have to reassess, I guess before that, you have to always constantly reassess your hypothesis every single time. Right, every single quarter, new earnings come out, or any sort of macro trends come out. Every single time, as a good investor, you have to reassess your hypothesis. And let's say the price actually does go down, that means that it's, you know, it's a buying opportunity at that point. If 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 in fact your hypothesis is still correct, right? And so a couple of things there: continuously reassessing, and even if the price drops, actually that's a good thing because you could buy more if you have dry powder, um, and then. Yeah. Any anything else, kind of in the summary there? All right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've we've kind of discussed the case where nothing in the inve- original investment thesis has changed, right? Um, I think that's an important part of this philosophy is that you know, Mister Market, you know, as uh, Benjamin Graham brought up in a uh, you know the book Intelligent Investor, he kind of made this fictional character, Mister Market, which I think we've talked about in a previous podcast. But you know, to summarize. Mr. Market has is this bipolar neighbor of yours, and he comes over the fence and he says, hey, I know you have this asset that you had. Um, I'm willing to buy it, um, you know, and, you know, things are going really well, so I'm going to quote you a price, right? Um, and, you know, would you like to buy, right? Uh, and then the next day he comes and he's super depressed and he wants to, uh, he says, you know, things have gotten really bad. I'm going to sell it to you at a much lower price, right? So Mr. Market is there to give you one piece of information, right? That is the stock price. That doesn't tell you anything about the fundamentals of the business. So at that moment, you have the opportunity to assess, uh, review the fundamentals, and then decide what you want to do. And and that may mean that you've analyzed a stock and it's a great business, but it's not quite at the price that you would feel comfortable buying at with a margin of safety and then you wait until Mr. Market gives you that opportunity, right? So you're you're constantly reassessing that fundamental knowledge base, right? Um, and that's in the case that nothing has in that has changed about the business fundamentals, then the investment thesis makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, so it goes down, you want to buy more. Um, but yeah. then w- now we have a, a, a secondary scenario, right, which is I think more to what you know, John's question was, which is when do I actually sell a stock? Right. So let's say now that you have this stock that is appreciated in value, right? And it is, you know, at or near the uh, valuation that you originally assigned it, right? So you've, you've done all of your homework, you've updated your thesis, you've updated it, and, you know, two years have passed, and now this is the current valuation, and the stock is trading at that price. Well, there's a couple things that you have to think about. One is, what are your other available options, right? When you buy, you know, to, to buy. So that could be, uh, you know, there you've surveyed the rest of the market and what is the opportunity cost with owning this fairly valued, you know, business, right? Well, it, you have two options there. One is to say, well, I'm going to stay put because, you know, it's currently valued at, you know, fair market value. Um, you know, the, the price is fair market value. So I'm going to just sit on it. Um, 
or I can sell because I have a better opportunity in the market now, right? I found another undervalued asset. And so that really is where your decision making comes into play is, is the opportunity cost of, of doing it, right? Now, there's a third less important one that I, you know, is, but it does affect your decision making is your tax assessments. So, uh, you know, you may have to sell because you want to offset, uh, you know, something that you lost, you know, in terms of you sold a stock at a loss, um, or you have sold a stock at a loss, you can sell it, you know, before the tax year is up to offset the gains that you get from this company. I don't particularly put that at a high, uh, you know, probability. I own stocks for multiple years. And so, you know, I'm going to be paying at most the capital gains cap for my tax bracket. So, so getting back to this, you really have two choices. One is, um, when there's a better opportunity available in the marketplace um, that has a higher, uh, you know, is more undervalued and has a better, you know, business prospects, at any price you may want to sell just to get, you know, into a better uh, opportunity. Um, and then the the other option is that the mark the the business is now close to fair value or it's grossly overvalued, right? And then you've you've said, you know. At this point, there's a risk that the stock price will come down because it's overvalued, right? And so, yeah. um, you know, going back to that discussion that we've had in the past about risk, right? Risk is associated with loss of principle, right? That's that's what risk should be defined as. That's not what Wall Street defines it as. But if you have an opportunity to lose money because your stock is overvalued, that may be another reason to, to, to sell um, and then, you know, park it in cash until you know something attractive comes available uh, yeah yeah so a lot there again <laughs> um i think uh those are really good good key points uh, that you mentioned Tari. Uh, i think also also um kind of as you were talking about you know buying and and well buying and then selling and then buying a new piece of a stock it really reminded me of kind of what you went through recently with yeah. uh, a company that you you personally owned for a long time, and this company reached its fair value or perhaps overvalued at, yep. at, at the price that you were selling that you are uh, at the price that you sold these stocks at, and then uh, and then you jump to another one, uh, another one that it was undervalued. So, right. I think uh, value investors are just uh, you know they're they're like passengers. They're you know they're on one transit. You know they're on us, uh, you know, on a, on a train, and then the train goes somewhere, and then if it hits some elevation, then you'd hop onto the next one. Yeah, and um, you know the interesting thing about that one is I bought it at fifty, around fifty dollars a share, fifty to fifty-five, something like that, and it appreciated to a hundred and ten dollars a share, so it, it dub- basically doubled. And in a matter of in a matter of by the way, in a matter of like a year and a half. Yeah, so they, it fairly yeah. quickly. And then I said, yeah. you know what? Um, it's fairly valued, a little bit overvalued at this price. And I sold it. Um, and the funny thing about that was is the stock continued to go up. So it went up yeah. to as high as 170. So yep. I left that on the table. But when I looked at it and I said, you know what? There's, yeah, And you can sit there and kick yourself for saying, oh, I should have seen that coming. But the truth is you can't, right? That was the fair value of the stock at that time was that price was $110. So I could not expect it or anticipate that that stock would go up to $170 a share, right? That, that was the mistake that I was, um, 
you know, it, it would be a mistake to just expect that, right? Because the alternative is that it goes to $110 a share and then it drops to $50 a share, right? Because now it's, uh, but I'm, I'm basing all of those decisions on my valuation, right? And maybe I was too conservative in my valuation and that's why it would have been 130 instead of 110. Um, but, you know, I still doubled my money. I had uh, what I thought was a better investment uh, opportunity uh, on the horizon. And, uh, and that's also why I switched. So it was a combination of fairly valued and a good uh, new opportunity cost uh, yeah. by continuing to own it. So, yep. Yeah, so I, yeah, that's a, I thought I thought as you were talking, I thought that would be a good example to mention here yeah, for yeah. John and the for rest sure. of our listeners. Um, yeah, so there was a lot there, uh, a lot there to cover. Um, obviously, the the um, the main points are you know the continuous evaluation of your portfolio, con- continuous evaluation of your hypothesis. That's a really a key point here, and also understanding the. Um, the lost opportunity, missed opportunity, the opportunity cost. If you were to stick with this company A or stick with company B, yep. and so opportunity cost and always evaluating your portfolio, always evaluating your hypothesis. Right. Uh, so it would be kind of the takeaway for this question. Um, all right, let's move on to the third question, the last question for this episode. What did you do with your capital when you can't find any investments, value investments, just keeping in cash or bonds, etc. So this is kind of question that comes up a lot also in value investing yep. because, and I think people look at Warren Buffett and his balance sheet and say, hey, look, you know, Warren Buffett has you know, billions of dollars in his balance sheet and he's not deploying, you know, into, into equity market. And he, they look at that and say, you know, the, comp- the, the, the macroeconomic environment might be too overvalued, et cetera. But all, all that to say, uh, people have, this is, a, this is really a burning question for a lot of people. You know, how yeah. do you... How do you manage your money when you can't find any valuable investment or valued investments? Uh, so I'll leave it up to you, Hari. And um, how, what are your what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so it, it's a it's a tough question, right? I mean, the, that last question too about selling was also a tough one, right? It's not a these are not easy things to to do. Um, but what I what I would say is is that uh, you know you can read entire finance books on asset allocation and how you should have, uh, you know, diversify your assets and you should put it in this amount in cash and this amount in whatever and so on, right? I imagine that most of us that are talking right now don't have, um, they don't, we don't have the, uh, you know, billions of dollars of money to deploy, right? Um, We don't have hundreds of millions of dollars. We probably don't have millions of dollars to deploy. So, our asset allocation is going to be very different from somebody like Warren Buffett, right? Uh, Warren Buffett has been quoted as saying that, um, you know, you have, uh, you know, when he was younger, he would uh, have 100% of his his money invested in the market, right? Um, and and that was because, he, you know, he had plenty of opportunities to, to, to uh, available to him. When you have $100 billion in cash, you don't have the opportunities that, he, you know, he doesn't have that luxury, right? He can only invest in very large corporations um, at his size. Um, and so what happens is $100 billion becomes kind of a noose right around his neck in that he can't successfully deploy it and still get a rate of return, right? So he is looking for a high rate of return on whatever he gets. And if it doesn't meet that criteria, then he's going to sit in cash, right? And he actually doesn't sit 
purely in cash. He probably has treasury bills and you know that kind of stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so speaking from you know that perspective, we are none of us is Warren Buffett, right? And so, uh, you know, looking to him for, you know, what is he currently doing? Doesn't necessarily, I don't think, is very helpful, right? I don't think Warren Buffett spends a whole lot of time thinking about macroeconomics, right? I think he is focused on individual businesses and what is their long-term uh, ability to grow, right? I mean, that that to me, I think, is his most important uh, factor when considering an investment decision, mm-hmm. you know. And I don't think he thinks about business cycles and where is the economy and, you know, the credit, relative yeah. to that cycle and stuff like that. There are certainly people who do. Um, and I don't know that that's, I would qualify that as value investing, right? I, I think that doesn't change the fact that a business is cheap, uh, you know, you know, relative where it is in the cycle, right? Now, that may mean mm-hmm. that at the bottom of a cycle, there are a lot more cheap businesses to invest in, but... So as to where to put that money when you don't have it, I am most comfortable with cash. I don't have never owned a bond. Um, I'm not opposed to owning bonds, um, but I would prefer to keep it somewhere relatively liquid so that if I do uh, find a opportunity, then I have the ability to do it. So if you take that money and you put it into real estate, um, you know, it may be a fine investment vehicle, but then you find something better. You don't have the liquidity of, uh, you know, being able to liquidate it fast so that you can go f- buy that, right? So, you know, if you can get a short-term bond uh, that you hold to maturity or a longer-term bond that you can sell on the bond market, then, you know, you have the opportunity there. Um, but I would also say cash is a pretty good option too because, you know, if you have 1% return, you know, from... Uh, your bond or you know two percent or three percent yield honestly you're not really getting that much of a return just by putting it there so cash is actually just a fine option in that situation yeah i would agree on that i would actually echo Hari's sentiment right there on liquidity uh and also just ease of use again kind of going back to liquidity aspect if you have all your cash all your money in cash form you can basically deploy it however you want to you might be losing some money because of inflation but the the trouble that you have to go through to have it in you know a a bond or or you know or different type of investment vehicle i think um for me at least is not worth the burden Um, i would rather have it in liquid very liquid cash so i can deploy it whenever i want to and if the opportunity presents itself, I have all this fresh powder right there, ready to go, and I can deploy it right there. So what you're saying, Beko, is Bitcoin. Yes. Bitcoin, Ethereum, all those. <laughs> yeah. No, we are not saying that. Uh, uh, yes. For, for <laughs> we need to make that clear, Hari. Let's make that clear. Yeah. Can you re- restate what you just said right there? Yeah. Uh, Bitcoin. Put it all in Bitcoin. <laughs> Uh, no people zero <laughs> so uh yeah so the answer is I, I would say cash right if keep it in cash or uh somewhere where it's short-term liquidity uh cryptocurrency is a great way to lose money because um, it's speculation right um anything that doesn't yeah. generate cash flow is speculation and that doesn't mean it's necessarily uh wrong but i just don't think it's going to be financially fattening for you so putting it into mm-hmm. cash is a is a good way in, and then Honestly, I think if you look hard enough, you will, you know, at the scale of money that, you know, we are all talking about, you will be able to find good investment uh, vehicles. 
uh, good stocks that are available. So don't don't um, you know wait in cash and then just keep doing research and then uh, until you find something. Yeah, yeah. I'd also say one more thing, kind of going back to that point about liquidity. I think uh, one of our listeners sent us an email saying that you know this person. Um, this uh, this gentleman is a business owner. He has a few few businesses in malls. I think he was a retail uh, retail um, owner, like a retail shop owner in business yep. malls. And he was talking about how you know if you really you kind of take a step back and think about the ownership of business, stock is just a very much a liquid way of owning businesses, right? You can right. sell stock, buy stocks just with a few buttons, click a uh, few few clicks uh, on, on the internet. Whereas if you're actually owning businesses, if you want ownership stake in businesses and you want to start your own business, there's a lot of overhead. There's a lot of burden that you have to put on your shoulder to be that business owner. Whereas stocks is such a liquid form of vehicle, liquid yeah. form of ownership that uh, I just I just step back and think about it. And I just, I just find it fascinating and amazing. This, this, this tool that we have for all of us, any of us, in this free market economy, can participate yep. in this in this ownership of great businesses all all, all over the world, wanting to list in uh, New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq. I think it's I think it's amazing. Well, and I, I think it's also worth mentioning because you know when you have somebody who owns their own business, right? They own their own business for the express purposes of making a profit, right? That's that's why you own a business, right? And as an owner of a business, what you are looking for is not the exit. Right, you are looking for it to generate enough cash flow for you to take it out of the business to help, you know, your bottom line, right? Your personal bottom line, not your corporate bottom line. Um, investing should always be about trying to make money off of the cash flow, not about selling the business at a higher price, right? If you think about it that way, then you will always focus on as an owner of the business, what are the vehicles that are going to get you the most profit for your buck, right? That is essentially all the exercise that we do every single day is identifying the the vehicle that's going to give us the best rate of return. So if I put down $100, what, I'm going to take the one that gives me $20 as a rate of return instead of 15, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and so people who think about buying something with the express purpose of selling it at a higher price are speculating that a higher price will come, right? And I think that's a very dangerous proposition that you and I may both buy the same stock but have very different investment theses, right? One is a speculative thesis and one is a investment thesis. And if I'm going to own the business, then what I want out of it is to generate as much cash flow because ideally... Right, going back to the question about when to sell, ideally the answer is never. Right, I want this business to just generate uh, cash flow forever for me, and and then it just continues to compound over time, and then uh, mm-hmm. you know I'll reinvest some to grow it, but I will eventually get a huge rate of return as a you know as a dividend or as a, a stock buyback or or whatever. Right, and if you think about it that way, then your answer to the the question about when to sell is. Well, ideally, it would just continue to compound forever, and I have a great business, right? And I can tell you the businesses that I've had made the most money off of are the ones where I've held it the longest, right? Because I look at the longest, you know, I have the most clarity on the long-term aspects of the business, and I, and I pass on businesses where I think I can see a shorter-term return, but I don't want to be uh, 
but it's speculation beyond a certain point, right? That yeah. maybe they have a, a, a fairly short runway, and once they hit that runway, it's not. You know, I would rather take the longer term business because I can. I, I can be honestly. I can just be more lazy, right? I buy it and then I sit on it. <laughs> And, exactly. Yeah. And then just let the money compound over time. Yeah. And, and the compounding part of it is is kind of crazy when you think about it, right? That let's say that you bought a business, right? This was talked about in the 100 bagger uh, book, that you bought a business that had a return on equity of greater than 15%. So every book that's compounded 100 times its uh, share price uh, had a return on equity above 15%, right? So if you're just focusing your... Uh, investment vehicle on that your your uh, thesis on that if you make one good decision and buy that company and make a hundred x return that far outstrips the amount of headache of finding thirty you know great companies that just you know uh, double right or I guess mm-hmm. it would be uh, yeah um, eight eight but companies that double right you'd only yeah. have to find uh, one right yeah and it's a lot easier to find that great businesses that just you know, compounds over time, right? And you also have much better in the way of tax implications and that kind of stuff. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that I think that is really a good message for everybody, because um, because you know we think about investing, we become really frenzy and we try to find all these different stocks. I need to invest now. I need to invest now. But uh, yeah, I think in reality, you only need a couple, couple big home runs. That's how you bought. You made two decisions to buy two stocks that hundred x your money, hundred x your money twice. Yep. I mean, do you need, do you need to, do you need to trade five thousand, you know, five thousand times a year? You know, you you don't. You you only need to to make those two decisions. So, I think that's a really powerful concept that you mentioned there, Hari. Yeah, and you know, if you look at it from that perspective, so I, I I'll tell you a great example of a company that I bought and held for a really long time was Accenture. Um, so mm-hmm. this is a services business that does IT consulting. And, yep. um, you know, they had a return on capital of like 25 or 30%. And I bought it 2007, 2008, like right as, at the bottom of the downturn. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you looked at what the analysts were saying, it was basically that this thing is going to explode and never, you know, <laughs> the end of the world and all this stuff. And, it, and you know, they compounded at... Um, you know, it, it, I, I would say it's a it's a roughly the same as, as their return on equity, the time that I owned it, you know, which is what you would expect, right? They took uh, that money, but they also paid dividends and all that. So at the end of it, uh, when I sold the stock, because I found a, a better opportunity, um, the, uh, the dividend yield was about 30% of my purchase price. So, you know, I, I was getting a fairly solid dividend um, you know, just, you know, I, I was basically getting a third of my money back every year in just a dividend, um, or quarter. It was, a, I think it was closer to a quarter. So, um, so regardless, I, I mean, what I would tell you is any investment that you make, um, you know, if you hold it for a really long time, you f- first, you find the great business and then let time be your, your capital, uh, uh, cruncher, because what it'll do is, uh, a great business has the ability to deploy money back into itself at a much higher rate of return than you can get elsewhere, right? That's why Becco and I talk about opportunity costs like, you know, we're nuts, right? 
that's the opportunity cost is how much can they reinvest that money back into their own business, right? Because yeah. the return on equity is actually not that useful if a company takes all of its earnings and gives it out as a dividend, right? At that point, it's not reinvesting in the business. But if it's, yeah. so return on equity only matters if it can reinvest that money back or it doesn't need to reinvest it for it to continue to grow. Those are the mm-hmm. two opportunities where return on equity means less, right? Or yeah. you know, that or that means more, I, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, all, all those discussions kind of return on equity and we'll, we'll talk more about it, I think, in the future episode because I think uh, this was a conversation that Hari and I had over Slack channel. Slack's just a you know, text message. Um, and he brought up a really interesting insight that I want to do a whole episode on because I think uh, this return on equity concept for asset like businesses, return on, you know, all, all these kind of quotients that people use to assign value to how effective they use capital depends on the type of businesses they are. If it's a asset light business, you can't just compare asset light business to asset heavy business and just look at that one number. Anyway, all that to say, we'll talk more about it because it's really interesting insight as a value investor and everyone should understand this. Uh, Anyway, we'll talk more about it. But uh, for this episode, I think that's all the questions that we had prepared. Um, thank you guys for sending it over. Please do send us more questions. Uh, we are, uh, you know, keeping track of all the emails that are coming in, and we will, like I said earlier, we will uh, we will compile them. And when it gets to a certain level, we will do an episode like this where we will answer all your questions. So, uh, anything else you want to add before we close out, Hari? Uh, y- yeah. All I wanted to just add was, you know, our, uh, you know, we don't charge you guys for anything you know, related to this podcast. Um, so the fan feedback that we get is, you know, the, the payment that we like, you know, that we <laughs> receive. So all of the, the nice emails that we've gotten so far have been, you know, very, um, it, it's great to hear it because it helps us, you know, continue doing this, uh, you know, for fun. And, uh, you know, we, we really appreciate everybody's kind words. Um, so please, uh, you know, please keep them coming. Um, we love the questions. We love uh, hearing from you guys. We love uh, talking to uh, to you. Um, you know, come and uh, uh, you know send us an email info at valueinvestor.org. If you haven't gotten the checklist, um, you know, do that. Uh, and also Twitter uh, at valueinvestortv. You can reach us uh, there. Uh, we love the questions. We love the tweets. Anything you have to to say, uh, you know, to us, we'd we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Um, I guess I'll add one more thing to that, actually. If you guys are gracious enough uh, to help us uh, send emails and things like that, one thing that would really help us is if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate us, uh, just give us, uh, you know, leave us your thoughts on there. You know, five stars would be awesome. If you don't think that we don't deserve five stars, we'll leave that there as well. Uh, (laughs) um, But, uh, you know, any, any comment on these official platforms will help us become you know, bigger, uh, bigger play uh, in, the, in the podcast space. So uh, keep it coming, like Hari said. All right, guys, um, I think that's it for us. We'll close out this episode. Um, all right, I'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you guys for joining. Yeah, thank you.